unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Call me the apologist now that I'm at Hi, and welcome to a new season of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion, which is on apologetics. Uh, this is a long-delayed discussion. It was actually meant to be our very first episode, so thanks for hanging in there with us. Joining me today is Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, uh, Nathan Gilmore. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fine, and Emanuel is a fine place to send your young people if you're going to send them somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Good to always the company man. Also joining us is a graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, and also I, I think now adjunct instructor of English at Emanuel College, David Grubbs. It's nice to uh, see you, as it were, David. Well, good to see you too, man. Emanuel College is slowly swallowing the Christian Humanist podcast. <laughs> I'm in their adjunct office right now, in fact. I, I remain unaffiliated. <laughs> All right. Well, right. Um, usually we begin the, the top portion of the show with a discussion of. Um, uh, listener email, but we don't have any, so let's just dive right in. And uh, we generally begin our conversation by talking about our personal experiences with the topic, in this case, apologetics. So let's go around the horn and talk about the apologetics in our our past. Uh, Nathan, you're our resident seminarian, so I'm especially interested as to the emphasis your school put on the topic. Uh, were you required to take classes in apologetics? I wasn't. Actually, my school was, it, it, it tended to be set against apologetics. My own encounters with the Subdiscipline of theology actually began back in high school uh, when I was a new convert. I was actually quite a dedicated follower of Ken Ham, uh, and actually I, I started out my college career majoring in computer science because I thought that my career would end up uh, with me being one of the system operators for whatever internet presence Answers in Genesis might have. So uh, I actually I actually have quite a quite an involved uh, past with apologetics early on. Uh, Milligan itself and uh, Emmanuel School of Religion, my seminary, really didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on that. Uh, to the extent that we did apologetics, uh, at Milligan, I mean, it was, it was more in the mold of something like John Howard Yoder or Stan Hauerwas to where it's an ethical apologetic. In other words, we demonstrate to the world a different way to live. And then at Emmanuel, there was starting to, uh, we were starting to show some influence from the radical orthodox movement, uh, which is something roughly analogous to what Cornelius Van Til does in the reform tradition. In other words, uh, doing what Van Til calls the presupposition analysis of mm -hmm. different thought systems, uh, what John Milbank calls an archaeological analysis of different thought systems, and basically approaching things like Marxism, uh, Nietzscheanism, things like that as defective and derivative from Christian theology. So to that extent, you know, that, that's been my own formal training in apologetics. Uh, David, I know that you were at one point the head of an apologetics club of sorts. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> well, I don't know about head. I was more their librarian. Um, head librarian. Yeah, well, yeah. My my own experience, uh, well, begins with reading my dad's books, which uh, yeah, everything that was in the house, basically, I, I read because it was there, um, and that included Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults, um, assorted books on uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, things of that nature, as well as the more the more poisonous kind of sectarian polemics like the two Babylons. Um, so early on, I got into the uh, I got into the habit of argument. Um, my college does uh, the place where I got a, my bachelor's does have an apologetics major. Uh, it's very valued at Southeastern Bible College as an intellectual pursuit, um, a theological pursuit. And uh, is seen as something that Christians should be uh, 
equipped with. Um, I was also for several years uh, a a writer, publications editor, and librarian for uh, a parachurch ministry uh, that worked in apologetics, but mainly in the relationship between the Christian community and other communities that represent themselves as uh, as Christian, but which are in in some way generally recognized as 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 not within the pale of orthodoxy. So, um, yeah, I've 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 met you know, uh, let's see, I've met J.P. Moreland, so that's that's my cool cred. I can't brag about anything like that. Um, I went to uh, Tacoma Falls College, which I've mentioned um, on here before, and they had a 4,000-level apologetics class that wasn't required for everybody, but for some reason, um, that's still beyond me, it was required for English majors, and for much more obvious reasons, for Bible and theology and pastoral studies majors. So everybody in this class was either an English major or uh, from the Bible and theology department, and I was the only English major. So I took this class during my final year of college, and it was just me and a bunch of guys from the B&T department, and most of them were very, very hostile to the humanities. And I remember at one point, a bunch of them agreed out loud during class that TFC should just get rid of all majors but Bible and theology and pastoral studies. And uh, I mean, the, prof- yeah, the professor was from the <laughs> philosophy department. But yeah, they, they, uh, they, they decided that what they did was the only thing of value, um, which... <laughs> I, doesn't I, really I, I reflect say, on Michael, apologetics. And I, understand that. I wish that the department were called biblical literature and theology, so you could call it the BLT department. <laughs> <laughs> so, something to keep in mind if we ever open the uh, Christian Humanist University. There you go. Yeah, yeah, we will have a BLT department. <laughs> so I was uh, mostly unimpressed with that class, and uh, I remember we learned how to argue against people who claim there's no such thing as absolute truth, and we talked about the problem of evil and whatnot. And we read Lee Strobel's books, which I liked uh, a little at least because he interviewed reputable people. He interviews uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. I think he interviews J.P. Moreland. Um, but overall, I didn't really fit into the class, and I quoted a lot of Kierkegaard, and we'll get to him later. And I didn't make a whole lot of friends there. So that's my experience <laughs> with apologetics such as it is. Fair enough. Um David, probably the first apologist of note is Justin Martyr, who lived in the first century after Christ, and he wrote several books of apologetics to the pagan uh, Romans. What's the nature of those books? I know you're a, you're a Justin Martyr fan. What's he arguing, and, and, and how does he do it? Before we look at what Justin Martyr wrote, I think it's good to look at his life, too. Um, uh, he was... Uh, before he converted a philosopher, uh, he claimed he claimed to have been a a trained philosopher, wore the gown of a philosopher, um, and so the this is the way he was used to approaching life. He was used to to thinking, thinking in terms of of systems, in terms of which systems are are logically coherent and intellectually satisfying. Um, but he was confronted with something when uh, he saw Christian martyrs. He saw their courage in the face of death. And uh, in uh, I believe it's in his second apology, he says that when he saw that, um, there was something that, that, that they had that his Platonism didn't have. <laughs> um, so once he converted, he he – he approached Christianity as the superior philosophy. Um, now, on one hand, uh, he he did group Christianity uh, within sort of the the same class as uh, as philosophy. He didn't take his philosopher's gown off. He kept it on as a Christian. He was just a Christian philosopher now. Um, but uh, he he believed that uh, that the Word, which he identified with Christ. And uh, I believe he cribbed this from the Stoics. Um, Nathan may be able to correct me on that one. Um, but the idea that there is this innate logic to the universe that is that is at the root of all things, um, and he identified this with the person of Christ via you know the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And so for him, uh, because this because this word is in in all things and in all people, whatever truth is produced in 
in any system of thought um, is ultimately something that Christians can embrace. So he was he was open to uh, to viewing Christianity as the same kind of thing, but more correct, more full, because it was the one it was the philosophy introduced by the word made flesh. Um, on the other hand, uh, his his apology is very insistent on the distinction between Christianity and other systems uh, because Christianity has the, uh, the advantage of prophets who speak directly to God and for God. Uh, for him, uh, predictions of the future are very important, um, especially uh, messianic prophecies. Um, he was also very uh, emphatic on the superiority of the person of Christ to the the heroes of mythology and and also the philosophers themselves, um, in terms of his 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 ethics in life, uh, as well as his thought and the fruits of his thought. So, uh, in terms of apologetics today, I don't I don't know that what he does would be uh, in apologetic textbooks. <laughs> I, I I was thinking about that as as uh, as I was kind of reviewing him. What kind of apologist would would we call him? But uh, he was he was working in a different era with different assumptions. So uh, and he was combating those. He wasn't talking to uh, some of the thinkers that we've got today. Sure, and I mean another one of the apologists of the patristic area, Tertullian. Uh, you know, most famously, he wraps up his apologia uh, with an open challenge to all of the priests of Jupiter. He says, let's go down to your temple and we'll bring a demon-possessed person in and we'll see who can cast it out. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking, wow, you know, I, <laughs> that, that's just one of those throwdown challenges you don't hear very much in the 21st century. Well, and if you read uh, Saints' Lives, I've been reading through the Golden Legend, which is a medieval anthology of Saints' Lives. So many saints actually do exactly what Tertullian is uh, – what, what his challenge was. They walk – they march into the temple and they say, uh, you know, here, here, here's my challenge. Here's some kind of miracle. If you guys perform it, I'll worship your god. Uh, the pagan priests invariably fail at which point the Satan's – or the saint succeeds spectacularly and usually the idol crumbles to dust or something to that effect. Right, right. So I can't decide if I'm glad we don't do that anymore, or if I wish we still did. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I think I would attend an exorcism throwdown. The closest thing we have is when uh, Evander Holyfield fought Mike Tyson and said it was his god versus Tyson's. <laughs> wow. <laughs> nice. What, what's the uh, What's the scripture say? He will bruise your ear. You will yeah. crush his. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if Richard Dawkins would show up for that challenge. <laughs> Nathan, uh, moving forward in history, you're one of the few Protestants I know who claims a substantial influence from uh, the guy who's undoubtedly the linchpin of Catholic theology, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, since Aquinas sometimes gets lumped in with apologists, and since I haven't read a single word of his theology, I was hoping that you could take a couple of minutes and talk about his influence on the discipline, along um, perhaps with other Middle Ages theologians like uh, St. Anselm. Certainly, I, and you know, I'll, I'll want David to chime in on that too because he's our resident medievalist. I'm just a tourist in the Middle Ages, uh, <laughs> but you know, what? This is entirely from an amateur point of view. I've never had a course in medieval theology, but reading Saint Thomas on my own, and I find him an incredibly compelling thinker. Uh, when I get to the section that people have traditionally labeled the proofs of God. Uh, I feel like I'm reading not so much a modern-day apologetics handbook uh, after the mold of Ken Ham or J.P. Moreland or such, uh, but I'm reading something more like, not identical with but analogous to, a progressive Protestant writing about biological evolution. Uh, so in other words, I mean, what I see Thomas doing there uh, is not necessarily pointing his guns outwards at the atheists, not that there were a whole lot of atheists in the 14th 14th century, 13th, pardon me, uh, but rather saying, all right, we've got this new body of learning, Aristotelian logic, uh, you know, can we take the revealed doctrines of the Christian religion and see if these 
new kinds of learning or these renewed kinds of learning actually fit with what we hold to be the revealed truth. And what he ends up proving uh, is not the existence of God uh, in a vacuum, uh, but rather that an Aristotelian conception of existence is compatible with the revelation of God uh, through the scriptures, through the magisterium, through the sources of authority that the church considers authoritative. And incidentally, I think, you know, St. Anselm's famous phrase, faith-seeking understanding, is in that same spirit. In other words, what we're after there is not uh, can we club Muslims and heretics over the head and turn them into Christians by force of argument, uh, but rather can we as Christians uh, be faithful, still seek learning, understanding? Can we seek these things out and remain who we are? And both Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas, by demonstrating through philosophical proof that classical philosophical accounts of exi existence are compatible with scriptural revelation, seem to answer in the affirmative. Yes, you can be faithful, still seek out learning. Uh, of course, that is you know one of the central convictions that motivates my own teaching and learning and work in the academy. Uh, I mean, David, I mean, have you read any of the the high medieval theologians and their so-called proofs of God? I covered that in an apologetics course, actually. Um, uh, one thing, though, that uh, uh, I think does need to be mentioned is that Aquinas did not like Anselm's ontological argument. Yes, um, yes, you're right. If you, uh, I mean, you you can look at you can look at the the five proofs as they're laid out in the Summa, but he expands on their on them more in his Summa Contra Gentiles, um, spends more time on them, uh, and also more time on why he doesn't think the ontological argument is that great. Um, mainly, he thought it was was wishful thinking. <laughs> And uh, that it didn't seem to him logically uh, – that it logically followed that because we can imagine um, an ultimate being of which self-existence is part of that def definition, that it necessarily means that there is such a being, um, which uh, that's my rather clumsy summation of Anselm's ontological argument. Um, I, I've – I must confess that I have a hard time reading Anselm's argument, and I had an equally difficult time reading Aquinas's <laughs> evaluation of it. Um, however, I do have a friend in the philosophy department at UGA who wrote his dissertation on a version of Anselm's ontological argument, and he thinks it works. So I'm I'm going to defer to my buddy Brian Baird and and just sort of. <laughs> Take it on faith, but um, so well, and, and, David, you get the same impression I do that I mean that Aquinas at least I I haven't done a lot of work with Anselm uh, that Aquinas at least is writing for the sake of those uh, Christians who are whose consciences are troubled by Aristotelian learning. Oh, absolutely. Um, what what he presents. Well, he, th this is actually kind of interesting. In Summa Contra Gentiles, he he asked the question. Um, whether God can be proven at all, um, whether whether God can can be known by reason, and what he what he concedes is that God is transcendent, and therefore human just natural reason does not ac have access to to the direct person of God for that reason. However. Uh, we do have access to to uh, knowledge about the divine through God's effects, so that you know by uh, instead of an ontological argument, we make a cosmological argument. We look at the cosmos, and we we deduce from the evidence that we see <laughs> um, what kind of mind, what kind of being produced the things that we see, um, which. That's pretty Aristotelian, I think. Um, oh, certainly the five senses. Yeah, ex the, the five ex wits. If we want to go to every man. Exactly. So it's it seems to me that his that his his arguments, um, 
his, his including his his five proofs, but his rejection of the ontological argument, along with his his assertion that some version of a cosmological argument is superior, is is part of his integration and justification of Aristotle to Christian to Christian thinkers of his day. And I mean, we've got to keep in mind too that Aristotle, uh, that the Christian Middle Ages got Aristotle from uh, uh, from the Muslims. Sure, so, so Averroes and Avicenna. Right. So, from the Arabs, anyway, because a lot of the early uh, Arabic translators were actually Christians. Right. Right. Well, but it, but it it was sometimes suspected for that reason. All right. And and so I I, I think by his, uh, I I don't know I I have a hard time seeing Aquinas so much as as an apologist for Christianity using the Aristotelians uh, using Aristotelian thought or as a Christian thinker who's also an apologist for Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, I mean I tend to think of them as the latter. And frankly, I mean this is one of the many reasons I'm about two thirds of the way through. Dawkins book the God delusion I mean that was one of the early indicators to me that I was dealing with someone at the very least philosophically tone deaf uh, because he did treat Aquinas's proofs as you know something that was written for him and I just you know kept thinking well no this this isn't for you Dick <laughs> he was writing this for another audience right right well David um Probably the foremost apologist of the last century, or at least the one everyone in our audience is going to know, is uh, C.S. Lewis. And you've probably studied him more than either Nathan or I have. Uh, so what can you tell us in our audience about his conversion to Christianity and his subsequent career as an apologist? What was it about Christianity, in other words, that Lewis found so attractive? Well, Lewis is also someone that you know you have to look at his life before you look at uh, the way he went about arguing about it. Um, and uh, it, it was interesting. I re- when when you told me that that we were going to be approaching this topic and that we were that uh, that I was going to be fielding a question about Lewis, um, I went back and read. Uh, well, I, I leafed through Mere Christianity, which I'd not touched in a while, but also I reread Lewis's. Uh, autobiography, more of a spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which um, I, I put up there with Augustine's Confessions in, in terms of Christian autobiography, uh, the, the mapping of an internal life. Um, Lewis was raised in a, uh, a Christian household. Uh, he says that his father was uh, – was a pious man and a good man who was was serious about his religion, but he was very traditional. Um, he was the kind of person who would request the old rugged cross every time him request night comes along. <laughs> um, and he he took he took great comfort in in the the traditional forms of uh, of Anglicanism, which that may have something part of that may. Maybe because he was uh, an Anglican in Ireland, <laughs> um, and so there was also uh, some something of a of a political and sectarian statement being made there. Um, ultimately, though, uh, Lewis lost his faith uh, as he went on his as as uh, he went on later in his education, and partly in surprised by joy, he says that uh, he says that it was because of his fear of. Of God's wrath, he he just couldn't take, he couldn't take it anymore. That the, the idea that someone was looking down on him and disapproving of him, and so when uh, arguments against the existence of such an Almighty Judge were produced, he latched onto them, <laughs> and and held them for for uh, on in on into his adult life, and it wasn't until uh, he uh, began his career. Um, in the university, that that he um, saw the, the those those uh, those arguments that he that he had embraced as no longer compelling. Um, what he found attractive in Christianity and why he returned. Um, two things: uh, surprised by joy, 
is mainly about experiences of something that he calls joy, which are these fleeting moments of desire, almost like homesickness for something that he didn't quite know what it was. And it would happen listening to music or reading certain kinds of stories. Uh, he tells about how he felt the sense looking at a little model garden that his brother had made. And he would try to pursue those things, those, the, those experiences that he, that he was uh, – those things that he was doing when he had that experience. And uh, those weren't the things that produced the experience. He wasn't sure what it was. Um, but as he goes on in the book, uh, what what he lays out is basically what we find in uh, Augustine's Confessions when uh, Augustine says that that I will not rest until I rest in you. Um, and Lewis uh, the, that's basically what Lewis argues is that is that in Christianity he found uh, he found the object of 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 desire that he had sensed was there um, at at different points in life. Um, intellectually, he came to Christianity because he eventually couldn't get around. He he couldn't embrace materialist notions of um, where human consciousness comes from, uh, and therefore became an idealist. <laughs> he, he could no longer be an, a, a materialist. He had to embrace some notion of a of of a, of a spiritual, uh, non physical being. And once he'd gotten there, once he'd once he he felt that he had to acknowledge a spiritual side to the world, um, he couldn't get around the fact that his sense of moral compulsion that the world ought to be a certain way was probably derived from something in the spiritual realm that was calling the moral shots. And so he worked from human minds to human spirits to some kind of spiritual entity that is the moral arbiter. And then from there, he, he finally submitted to the notion that, yes, this God, I am responsible to him. And he submitted to that God. He would, uh, in, in, his, in his biography, he says he was not yet a Christian but he still he still places that as his as his conversion when he submitted to the God who judged him, and later on he found uh, he found the answers that that Christianity uh, offers to expand on that kind of basic theism. But uh, yeah, that's his life. Um, and his apology basically follows a lot of the same kinds of things. If you look at mere Christianity, you find the same emphasis on uh, a sense of moral oughtness. You find the same uh, emphasis on human desire for something beyond the material world. And in mere Christianity especially, you find a sense uh, – you find repeated arguments for why materialism is not sufficient to explain our experience and our sense of ourselves. So, Michael, I know you read uh, N.T. Wright's sort of latter-day version of Mere Christianity, Simply Christian, with your Sunday school group. I mean, I've wondered, because I've only finished about the first third of that book, I I still need to get back to it. I mean, does N.T. Wright take a similar track, or... You're asking the wrong guy. Um, we uh, we watched the uh, last two episodes of the video. We came, we joined the church right at the tail end of that uh, series. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because I that's one of those things I always meant to read. N.T. Wright's, you know, simply Christian. Like I said, I've only read about the first three chapters of it. Uh, it's still sitting on my ch- shelf with a bookmark in it. Uh, but I, like you said, I'm asking the wrong guy. So I, I guess I'll let you be moderator, Michael. <laughs> Well, I got to say, guys, I'm a little surprised by the way this is going because I expected when I got to my big monologue on Christian existentialism to be able to say, and here's where that tradition completely breaks down, but that doesn't appear to be the case. It appears that the Ken Hams of the world, the um, let's prove God through logic and science, is kind of a minority opinion in the history of Christian theology. Do you think that guy that's true? I think it's a recent development, certainly. Because and I, I have I uh, 
What's that, David? I said I, I, I would I would argue that the same thing. Um, early, earliest apologists that we see, and then theologians up through the ages, have all uh, all the ones that I've read have consistently said that there are things that you can say about Christianity from outside, but the meat of it is something you can only get at from the inside. So it's fair to say then that the the majority opinion in the history of apologetics is Anselm's um, faith-seeking understanding, right? Which he gets from Augustine, by the way. Last time I brought that up, I was corrected that it wasn't Augustine, but it is. Augustine Augustine says in a sermon to believe that you may understand, which is where Anselm. Oh, okay. So he did originally formulate that. That's good to know. So is it is it fair to say then that faith-seeking understanding is our historical model for apologetics? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, this idea that Christians have a duty to dispute the validity of Christianity in some sort of neutral public square only comes into being when a neutral public square becomes part of the imaginative horizon of the West, uh, Mm -hmm. which is to say really only since the Enlightenment and the high modern period. I mean, David, would you say that's... Well, especially if you go back and look at Justin Martyr, his apology, he was not an apologist in the sense that we use the word today. Um, he's called Justin Martyr because he was one. Um, it wasn't his last name? No, it wasn't his last name. His mother he, really didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, one day you're going to die for Jesus. Um, <laughs> Who doesn't exist yet? Yeah. It, yeah. Well, actually, he was he was born around 100 AD. So, oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, but his, his apologies were very much in the vein of, please stop killing us. We're really not criminals. <laughs> so he was arguing for the superiority of Christianity as a true religion versus pagan religion, but he was also arguing we aren't atheists, we aren't eating babies, um, you know, we aren't doing all of these things that we're accused of doing. In fact, we're a better religion than the one that you've got. So. Actually, David, as I remember, that's also the thrust of the argument that Tertullian sets forth in his apology, that uh, not only are Christians not dangerous, you know, the same sort of strain that Justin Martyr was on, but also uh, because we are praying to a God who actually governs the universe rather than being a fabrication, uh, we're actually of more benefit to the empire because we're saying better prayers. Yes, yeah, and and that's a that's a common vein in in the apologies of of that period. Now, after Christianity is first, you know, allowed to come into the light because of Constantine, and then instituted throughout the empire uh, because of Theodosius. The second. Um, do what second? <laughs> yeah, yes. I didn't know. I didn't know that they had that he had a number. Um, Things things change. Um, the 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 attitude uh, the attitude shifted from stop killing us for these reasons to we're just superior for these reasons. <laughs> um, but uh, but even even C.S. Lewis was was writing in the middle of uh, of a of an era that was hostile to Christianity and Christianity's claims had been rejected for a number of reasons. But not nearly the kind of hostility that Justin Martyr was facing. So um, we can agree then that that where the uh, Ken Ham school of apologetics begins is the Enlightenment. I would and, say uh, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think of someone like Wilber. Is it Wilberforce? Is it Bishop Wilberforce that debates Huxley? I think so. In the wake of Darwin, yeah, I mean, that sort of uh, counter atheist, counter offensive. Uh, really is a product of modern atheism, which is really a relatively recent invention. You know, I I suppose you could trace it back to David Hume or somewhere in that era. Mm. Then I'm going to argue that it's the uh, Christian existentialists who maintain um, classical apologetics, if you want to call it classical apologetics, starting with the mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, um, who dies young and leaves us with this notebook full of vague thoughts for this major work on apologetics. Uh, the book is called The Pensees. And um, it's interesting because it's so ambivalent about apologetics. Um, Pascal gives a lot of arguments for the existence of God and for the truth of Christianity, but he ends up, I think, 
kind of losing interest, and even if he'd lived, I'm not sure he would have finished this book. Uh, here's one thing he says. This is from Pensée number um, 233, and don't ask me to say that in French, please. Uh, <laughs> who then will blame Christians for not being able to give a reason for their beliefs, since they profess a religion for which they cannot give a reason? They declare in expounding it to the world that it is a foolishness, and then you complain that they do not prove it. If they proved it, they would not keep their word. Let us examine this point then and say, God is or he is not, but to which side shall we incline? Reason can decide nothing here. There is an infinite chaos which separates us. A game is being played at the extremity of this infinite distance where heads or tails will turn up. So this is where Pascal sets forth his uh, famous wager, wherein he claims that the idea that there is a God and that the idea that there isn't, they're both equally absurd, and that the only thing you can do is to take a bet, and since the loss would be so great, if you bet that there wasn't a God and there is one, everyone should be a Christian. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I find that part of his argument rather unconvincing because it's so cold and logical. Um, well, it, it, it's also the, you can either be an atheist or be a Christian. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to acknowledge that there are any other gods to be chosen. And in 17th century Europe, there really weren't. Well... Mm, there were Jews. <laughs> in, in some countries. Okay, yeah. Right, but I'm sure he was aware of their existence. That's true. A anyway, uh, whatever, whatever the failings of the wager, and I, I do think it's, it's in the end a philosophical failure, Pascal's important to me because in, in an age that was primarily of reason, he recognizes that faith is something else altogether. And I think that's where Soren Kierkegaard picks him up and takes it even further. Um, he says in, in the concluding unscientific postscript, which is this 500-page postscript to a work that's 50 pages long, um, he, he says that any attempt to prove God necessarily backfires and that, um, that because when you're, trying to be, when you're trying to objectively prove God, you lose all the subjectivity that faith is made out of. And uh, he, he says that Christianity is spirit, spirit is inwardness, inwardness is subjectivity, subjectivity is essentially passion, and in its maximum, an infinite, personal, passionate interest in one's eternal happiness. So apologetics, then, if we're going to conceive them as Enlightenment thinkers did, is a system of theology that seeks to logically persuade its listeners of the truth of Christianity. Obviously, apologetics doesn't have anything to say to Kierkegaard, because uh, faith is built on this radical subjectivity. And instead, you need um, his teleological suspension of the ethical, his leap of faith, that allows you to put aside your logical doubts for a moment and trust in the truth of Christianity. It's that faith seeking understanding um, over and over again. And uh, so I, I'm going I'm to argue that the Christian existentialists kind of keep um, apologetics alive and free from the uh, logical positivists. That's fair enough. And I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I think Kierkegaard is as good a starting point as any and I think you make a good case for him simply because, you know, the intellectual challenges of post-Hegelian intellectual culture are so radically different from what Thomas Aquinas or Tertullian or Justin Martyr were facing uh, that, you know, I do think that, you know, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it straight out. I mean, I think attempts to pull Thomas Aquinas's apologies for Aristotle out of their context and turn them into some sort of prolegomenon to Christianity, uh, I think that, you know, Kierkegaard is right. I mean, that is a failed project. Uh, it's not what they were intended for. Uh, they don't work in that capacity very well. And frankly, you know, I think that something along the lines of Kierkegaard's uh, ethic or suspension of the ethical, something along the lines of C.S. Lewis's and N.T. Wright's um, really sort of, you know, emotional, psychological, existential angle on things is ultimately going to be more compelling than an appeal to formal logic. Not only that, I think it's better theology. Say because more. The, the, the Ken Hams of the world, I'm sorry we keep picking on Ken Ham if, if there's any uh, Ken Ham fans listening to this, but he's kind of the one who's coming to mind. Um, the, the, the Enlightenment apologists of the world um, throw out the role of revelation. If you ask me, if you can, if you can logically prove God, and Karl Barth makes this point in the Word of God and the Word of Man, if you can logically prove God, the God at the end of that logical proof is not God, because He's under sway to you. 
if I may contend, um, which is a very appropriate thing to do in an apologetics podcast, um, Kinham, I, I, I wouldn't say that he negates the need for revelation because his whole his whole purpose in life is that is is to argue that science should submit to revelation in its uh in its attempts to to formulate theories about origins um you know he he yes he does argue he he does argue about science but i mean i might say that 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 that's akin to i mean he does argue within within the realm of empiricism but I would say that that was akin to Justin Martyr never taking his philosopher's robe off. Um, that that's he's he's arguing within a specific context. The scientists that he's arguing about are just as enlightenment <laughs> in their argument. Um, and I mean, could, could it could it not be argued that maybe maybe Kinham is a is is arguing by a particular kind of reasoning? in a field in which that particular kind of arguing is the coin of the realm and maybe not effective in, in other settings. That's I don't know. Be fair. I, go ahead, Michael. No, you go ahead, Nathan. All right. I, you know, I, I think my objection to the way that I'll, I'll just say Josh McDowell, so we're not consistently flogging Ken Ham, you know, <laughs> the way that Josh McDowell proceeds concerns me because it sets up a situation in which the prolegomenon becomes so central that the appeal of Christianity rises and falls with the prolegomenon. In other words, I think that their intentions are right, David, uh, mm. but I think that you know the idea that it is the duty of the academy-trained intellectual to somehow demolish the powers of this present darkness— so that Christ can get through does put us in a position where we have to rescue Jesus. And I suppose, you know, I'm, I, I, I guess the balance that I see, the balance that I would want to strike is something like, uh, Jonathan Edwards sermon, a divine and supernatural light in which he says that, you know, the intellect, uh, unaided by grace, uh, can indeed discern the form uh, and the content of Revelation by simply reading the text of the Bible uh, the way that, you know, Bart Ehrman does or something of that sort. But that mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, what crashes through the barriers of sinfulness on all levels, you know, Edwards, if anyone, believed in total depravity, that the intellect was also depraved, uh, had to be a, a direct divine and supernatural light, hence the title of the sermon. So, you know, it's not that I think that Ken Ham and Josh McDowell have bad aims or bad motivations, uh, but I think that the logic of that project, because it puts Christ in the position of needing rescue from the academic, it strikes me as dangerous. I mean, am I overplaying my hand here, David? Because I might be. I think if 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 we read, um, and and I've read I've read Josh McDowell. Uh, my my family still has uh, a subscription to to Ken Ham's magazine where he frequently talks about lizards eyeballs and things of that nature. I'm um, sure I've got I've got friends who are still big Ken Ken Ham fans. So, and I think if you read the totality of of their work, you will find places where they where they say things like that. So okay, so I I I don't think you know. I don't. I don't think they they believe that they have to. They, that they have to convince you before you'll believe, but, but at the same time, um, I'm I'm actually thinking more about uh, what you said earlier, Michael, uh, about Pascal, and that maybe they've been goaded into into defending Christianity. Um, in an arena that it's not a that it's not appropriate to try to defend it in that way, um, that you know you 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 ask us for proof from from a certain you know you ask us for a certain kind of proof, but uh, but I don't think that's what people really want. No, I mean they 
they they may demand scientific proof for God, but I don't think they would know what they what it looked like if they saw it. <laughs> Nor would they necessarily accept it, even if it. I mean, God could take out the neon billboard, and people still wouldn't turn to him. I I, I believe that. Right, or oh, he God. could raise a man from the dead, just to give an example. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, God has ta- has taken out billboards. I see those on the sides of interstates occasionally. <laughs> it's true. He's he's really got quite a wit on him. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and, uh, just to, you know, blow C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, uh, blow the horn for him again, um, he does, he has a chapter in Mere Christianity, uh, called, um, Perfect Penitence, I believe, in which he, he does argue that, you know, while we may know many things about God, that ultimately what is required is a submission to that, and, uh, he says that, that, submission to that truth is something that only happens because God is because God is inside you doing it for you. <laughs> How Calvinist. Um so yeah, it's it's uh that this this notion that there has to be a, a spiritual work, a spiritual light. Um a that, divine and supernatural al- light. Yes, a divine and supernatural light. Um that allows you to bend your will even to the things that your that your mind knows uh, is, uh, I think, a f- something that's pretty broadly recognized in in the apologetics tradition. Now, folks, I want to go ahead and deal with this before we get the email because I seem to get this after every episode. Are we saying science is wrong, or that science and faith have no compatibility? No. Mm. Are we saying there's no way to do apologetics and use science um, in it? No, I don't think so. All right, I just <laughs> I, I just wanted to get that on record. You heard it here, folks. Don't write the angry emails to Michael Farmer. Well, if I can pull my John Locke card, which I almost never play this card, um, if 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 you read. Uh, essay concerning human understanding one of Locke's main arguments for why we should approach the search for truth empirically is the argument that God made us that God is truthful and therefore he designed our senses to perceive truthfully and he designed our minds to think truthfully about it so even if we you know if we go back to you know what? Who the a, a thinker who is sometimes the whipping boy um, in Christian circles, the man who made empiricism, um, at least in its modern form. Even he rooted his empiricism and and its ability to make truth claims on the notion of a transcendent God who who made us to to see truth and to and to and to know it. Well, and David, we I'll uh, I'll see your lock and raise you Nietzsche. Because Nietzsche, right after he says God is dead in the gay science, goes ahead and dismantles Enlightenment science and says, if there's no God, there's no reason for you to behave this way. So yeah. even even um, one of the, the most famous atheists of all time is making this connection between God and science and saying, in fact, there is no conflict, that, that science, science depends on God. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you read your Summa Theologica carefully, you'll see similar things. <laughs> Which apparently I do need to read my Summa Theologica carefully, because so, I hadn't noticed that. So, oh yeah, I mean, for Aquinas, I mean, uh, knowledge always comes through the five senses. So, I mean, he is, at the very least, a forerunner of Christian empiricism. Awesome. So speaking of science, um, the rise of the new atheists in the last half decade or so, um, which was itself spurred by a renewed push for intelligent design theory to be taught in public schools, uh, that's resulted in a new and quite vociferous battle over religion, including a new group of apologists for faith of all sorts. Um, What have you guys read of the new atheists and of their religious opponents, and how have Dawkins and company forced the discipline of apologetics to change? Nathan, well, first of all, I want to encourage our listeners to look at Michael Farmer's blog, Ladder on Wheels, so you can see the umlaut on New Atheist as he writes it, because it's one of the the most clever treatments of Dawkins I've ever seen with one <laughs> stroke of a uh, an ASCII code. I He's rendered them entirely silly. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's like Motley Crue 
It's supposed to be like uh, new metal from the uh, late '90s. Yes, yes. Oh, see, I was thinking Motley Crue. I, I hadn't even thought of new metal, but I'm I'm old. So, uh, you know, I have read, like I said, about two thirds of the God Delusion. I've read some articles by Dawkins and Hitchens. Um, you know, frankly, like I said, like I alluded to before, I think that at the very least, these guys are philosophically tone deaf. Uh, I've also read Terry Eagleton's uh, response to them: Reason, Faith, and Revolution. And what people have noted over and over about Terry Eagleton's book is it's less a philosophical treatise, more a joke book. And I, there's a reason for this, because Eagleton is actually a, a philosophy teacher. He's actually read these texts that Dawkins uh, tries to marshal uh, in his case against religion as a category. And Eagleton can simply quote the bits of these texts that you know render Dawkins' argument silly uh, crack wise about them as the British tend to do, uh, <laughs> and pretty much dismiss them. So, I mean, I think that, uh, if, if there's something for learned Christians to pay attention to here, and I'm borrowing this from Michael Spencer, the internet monk, by the way, uh, who has had surgery recently. So if you're a person who prays for internet personalities, pray for him. Uh, but I mean, one of the things that he points out is that, the real battle between Christianity and atheism is not happening at the high levels where people who have actually read Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and Jacques Derrida play our little games, uh, but rather the real battle is happening on a level where these popular books by folks like Josh McDowell, folks like Richard Dawkins, folks like Christopher Hitchens are playing their tunes to people who don't have the tools uh, really to respond to them in any historically aware sense. And, you know, my response to that, since I'm a teacher, uh, both in the college and in my congregation, is that it falls to us who teach uh, to give the folks in our congregations and in our classrooms some sense of that historical complexity so that folks like Dawkins and Hitchens don't have as much sting to them. Uh, David, I mean, how much exposure have you had to Ditchkins, as Eagleton calls them? Um, some, mostly it's been reading, reading articles about them. Um, honestly, I have a hard time reading them because it's just really bad for my blood pressure. <laughs> um, and, uh, they aren't, um... I, I, how, how do I put this? They aren't in the realm that my mind is engaged in at the moment. Um, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel as compelled to, to deal with, with their answers, um, or with what, with what, with what they're saying about Christianity because my faith is not, um, you know they can they can say what they want and it does and it doesn't touch me. <laughs> um, the MC Hammer defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't touch this. Um, it it does, however. I mean, what, what I have felt are the the effects of them and the the general sense that that a lot of Christians have of, and and we've talked about this before of being in this incredibly hostile culture. Um, again, we're not near, we're not nearly at Justin Martyr stage yet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're not that, that high up the, uh, um, persecution, uh, ladder. Right. And in fact, I mean, I would argue that the existence of folks, not only like Dawkins, but also like Ken Ham relies on a general cultural environment where people are generally too polite to tell them to shut up. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, con considering that, you know, if Richard Dawkins had lived in Geneva back in Calvin's day, <laughs> uh, it, it would have been the stake for him. Probably um, for Ken Ham, too. Well, <laughs> may maybe. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, though, and again, back to C.S. Lewis, I think he anticipated uh, to some degree people like that in mere Christianity because in a lot of ways that book is not so much an attempt to 
make all of Christianity reasonable to somebody on the outside so much as it is to to try to share with someone outside of Christianity what Christianity looks like and feels like from the inside and why it's why it makes sense to us and is compelling to us who are on the inside and invites you know invites those people to come in and see and come in and see what this feel, see see what it's like um because you won't know what it's like until you get there um and it, it, in a lot of ways i think that that's where where our culture is yes our culture does have christopher hitchens and and dawkins and so forth but i don't think most most non-christians are think that way i i I think most people are looking for a religion that they can uh, that they can live and can answer the questions that they actually have about life. Um, the people who embrace the the Hitchkins is that, is that what you said, Nate? Uh, d- um, Ditchkins. Ditchkins, yes. The the, the people who much more derogatory the, that way. Yeah, the people who <laughs> embrace the Ditchkins. Um, it's more what. Uh, what Lewis talked about in his his biography of latching onto arguments that allowed him to uh, to suppress feelings he had about reality and about his place in it that he was uncomfortable with. <laughs> um, so, yeah. well, it's interesting, David, because that approach you just narrated uh, happens. I mean, on a very specialized academic level, uh, both in the contemporary Roman Catholic theologian John Milbank's work. And in the contemporary Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart's work, uh, Milbank's book is Theology and Social Theory, and uh, Hart's book is The Beauty of the Infinite. But in both of those books, I mean, exactly what you just described, they make the case that uh, the project of evangelism, they don't call it apologetics, the project of evangelism is ultimately an aesthetic project rather than a, an Enlightenment-style logical dispute so it's interesting that, you know, once again, you know, Lewis is doing this on a popular level several decades before uh, those two specialized theologians pick up, you know, their projects. Well, I, I don't think Lewis would say that it's completely divorced from the mind, but because he, you know, he believed that God was, you know, that God was the source of truth and logic and reason. Um, but uh, he was also very very clear that you know we as humans don't have access to all the facts and we should not reason as if we did <laughs> and uh that uh, he he argues that you know he he get, he gets empirical about subjectivity which is really interesting um he says that you know we can look at the cosmos and think about god but actually the the part of creation that we have the most access to and know the most about is ourselves our internal selves and look into yourself, look into your mind, look at your feelings, look at your heart, look at uh, the way that you feel about the world and your place in it. And that, that this is the most direct access that we have to, to the cosmos so that these aesthetic experiences, these feelings of subjectivity, um, all of these things, he actually treats as empirical evidences that your mind can weigh. For him, empiricism is not putting aside your emotions. It's about looking at them as serious phenomena that are indications of the way things really are. All right. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's end by answering the question of what the role of apologetics should be for the 21st century Christian. How, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves in the secular world? What does it mean to, uh, as St. Peter tells us, always have an answer for the hope that is within us? Um, and any other final thoughts? David, let's start with you. Uh, I feel like I've been talking so much, but just to, just to answer briefly, um, what's the role of apologetics? How do we conduct ourselves? What does it mean to have an answer? Well, the first thing that it means is uh, if we're going to have an answer, we have to know what the questions are. Um, I think one of the reasons, and we've talked about this, why Aquinas's, you know, five ways, uh, why some, why some of those those kinds of methods from from days of of you know times past 
aren't as effective now is because those aren't the questions people are asking. Um, part of uh, part of I, th I think our role as Christians is to know where people are, what they're thinking, what their worldviews are. And you mentioned it earlier, uh, Nathan, talking about uh, the the course that you that you took in seminary. Uh, I believe it. I believe you were talking about that with the idea of evaluating evaluating the way people think about the world. And so if we're going to have answers, we need to know what the questions what the questions are and not be offering answers to questions that aren't being asked. Certainly. I think, you know, to answer your final question, Michael, that, you know, one of the things that I try to do as a teacher is not to be an apologist for Christianity to the learned, but to be an apologist for learning to the Christian. And I, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I am certainly inspired by St. Thomas's project. Uh, I'm interested in, you know, saying, all right, can we bring something like existential philosophy, something like uh, continental theory? Uh, can we bring these things to the table, bring them under the subjection of Christian doctrine and find out if there are more interesting questions to ask than the ones we're asking? Uh, so, I mean, as far as that's concerned, I mean, I do tend to be more of a medieval thinker in that respect. Now, I think that there is a place for apolog apologetics. I'd probably lean away from Josh McDowell-style neutral ground, two equal sides colliding apologetics. I'd lean more towards a Con Cornelius Van Til or John Milbank style of apologetics, but I would encourage people, one of the primary critiques both of Milbank and of Van Til is that when they try to crawl inside of so-called secular reason, and they both use that phrase, a lot of times they are accused of, and rightly accused of, creating straw men uh, instead of engaging the actual text, the actual processes that are going on there. So I would say to those Christians who are interested in apologetics, by all means, continue doing so, uh, but do so in a spirit of humility. Listen first. Uh, be able to repeat back to your interlocutor the basic points of that person's philosophy so that that person can say, yes, that's basically what I believe, before you proceed to attempt critique. And, you know, that is, I think, a manifestation of Christian charity, uh, I think that it's you know just a good idea when you're engaging intellectual projects as someone who represents the King of Creation, Jesus Christ. What do you what do you figure, Michael? Apologetics, good, bad. Uh, apologetics, as we've defined it on this show, um, faith-seeking understanding, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, I even I even think there's a place, maybe not for Ken Ham, but for folks like Hugh Ross over at Reasons to Believe. If you guys, do you are you familiar with uh, that organization? Negative. They're old Earth creationists. They they they're you know they have scientific degrees and they talk about old Earth creationism and they they recognize that this is a matter of faith and not a matter uh, that that uh, that can be proven logically. And I I, I think there's a real place for that. I I think uh, I think there's a certain measure of humility in that, and I appreciate it. Um, but apologetics as conceived by the Enlightenment, uh, I I see. I, I see no benefit to. I, I see. I see no benefit to trying to logically prove God or uh, anything like that. Apologetics is for the Christian, and not for the non-Christian. And I'm. I'm. I'm glad we. Uh, we all agreed on that uh, relatively early on, and found that the the history of apologetics backs us up. Sorry. Sorry to steal your thunder, man. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> well, uh, that's about as much time as we have for today. Uh, just a note, we will be recording late next week, so the episode's going to come out on Thursday the 21st instead of Tuesday the 19th. David, you're going to be our moderator. What are we going to be talking about? I got interested uh, when in preparing for uh, this, this apologetics podcast, and I got to thinking about not just the way that within Christendom uh, we look out to the world and uh, argue with ideas and, that are there, uh, but also the way we deal with uh, with divisions uh, within uh, Christendom, uh, not only sectarian divisions, but also, uh, uh, need I say, heresies. Um, 
so uh, to me, the, 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 the inside face of apologetics is polemics. Um, and I think uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. How do, how do how do we work within the church and talking about uh, talking about doctrines, talking about truth, and who's right? <laughs> Sounds good. Well, that's it for the Christian Humanist podcast this week. As usual, if you want to read Nathan Gilmore's blog, you can get it at www.nathangilmore.com/hardly. If you'd like to read my blog, it's at ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. We're still trying to get David Grubbs to write on his blog. If well, you have if any I start questions, blogging, you won't be able to say that anymore. That's I know. But uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I'll have another blog to plug. Oh, well, that's good. If you have any questions, comments, or topics for future shows, please send them our way. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, and let your faith be stronger. Call me the apologist now that I'm at peace. You know, at first it really hurt we joke about these things. I'm scared.